You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. This podcast is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, who have been telling Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. Follow them online at oklahomahof.com and then definitely follow them on Instagram for all the information that you need because I'm sure that's where you follow us as well, at oklahomahof. Let's get into today's episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hoon here, your host, back with another episode. We are in Tulsa, Oklahoma today, right around the corner from Southern Hills. I'm a golfer, so I noticed that straight away. But we're not going to talk about golf today. We're going to talk about Mr. Jim Stovall, who was inducted uh, last year in 2021 into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. Has a fantastic story. Um, you're going to learn a lot from this uh, this podcast. Um, I wish we could talk about golf because I love golf, but we're not going to talk about golf, um, even though the PGA Championship is coming up, and I'm sure traffic will get a little bit busier around this area in May. But Mr. Stovall, thank you so much for inviting us into your home. I look forward to sharing your story today and and hearing some things and sharing some things that maybe some people listening may not know about you, stuff that is a little bit deeper than what, what is in your bio, which... If I read your bio, it would probably take me 10 minutes because there's a lot of, a lot of cool things in there that, uh, and things that you've accomplished that you guys have done. Um, but starting out, tell me about what it was like you know, when you grew up in Oklahoma. Well, first of all, we're delighted to have you here in our home near Southern Hills. It's one of my favorite places, and uh, we've been members there for a number of years, and I am a huge golf fan. So we're all looking forward to the PGA coming here, and uh, for my various books, I've interviewed Jack Nicholas and Lee Trevino and Gary Player. And the last time the PGA was here, um, it was the year before we became members at Southern Hills. And But the PGA hired me to come and speak to the sponsors and players banquet. So I actually was there and uh, that's the one Tiger Woods won here. And uh, really a fabulous thing. And it's a thing I'm really proud of Southern Hills and Tulsa and all of Oklahoma for making it happen. And I grew up um, on the other side of Southern Hills in a very modest home. And uh, I remember when uh, when my father, when I was maybe 10 or 11, my dad was uh, an avid golfer and he was going to take me and show me how to play golf. But we had to go 20, 30 miles out of town to this other place we played, and we would always pass Southern Hills. And I'm a 10-year-old kid or something, and I always asked, I said, Dad, why don't we play there? And he said, well, we don't get to play there. And um, and uh, so when I joined the club, one of the things they asked me is, why do you want to join? I said, so I can tell my dad, we get to play there. So it's kind of fun, but it is a marvelous place that all of Oklahomans should be proud of. And I grew up here in Oklahoma and uh, have had many, many opportunities to leave and go other places. Uh, I'm in the movie business, so everybody always says go to Hollywood. And I'm in television and publishing, and everybody says go to New York. But uh, we have stayed here, and it's probably been one of the best things that ever happened to me. And growing up in Oklahoma, I thought the whole world was Oklahoma. And then when I got out of here I and started going other places, I realized there's other great things in the world, but I've never gone anywhere where I wasn't glad to come back home to Oklahoma. There's a lot of people listening that totally agree with what you said, because everyone finds their way back to mm-hmm. Oklahoma, for sure. Uh, so growing up in Tulsa and, and, and playing a little bit of golf then, um, 
what was you know when when you grow up what what was kind of like your childhood dream what did you want to do when you were growing up as a dad i'm going to be this well as a very young child i wanted to be a professional baseball player a little tiny kid my dad had been a uh, a minor league baseball player his claim to fame was he played in a game against mickey mantle and that's what uh, caused my dad to get out of baseball because uh, he told the manager uh, uh, I, I thought we were all going to be Major League Baseball players. I don't know what we're doing here, but that guy over there, Mickey Mantle, that's a baseball player. And uh, the rest of us, I'm not sure what we're doing. And uh, Dad got a regular job, and Mickey went on to uh, uh, play center field for the Yankees the next year. And uh, years later, when my first book came out, I was on Good Morning America, and I went into the green room before uh, the show starts, and you're in there like it. 4.30 in the morning or 5 in the morning or something. And I'm sitting there, and the only other guest that arrived was Mickey Mantle. So it was fun to sit with him and talk about Oklahoma and my dad and and everything else. And it uh, it was a lot of fun. But that was my, my ambition as a little tiny guy. And then when I was 7, 8, 9 years old, my little league coach noticed that I played really good early in the games, and late in the games I was just horrible. And they thought I was lazy or something. And, well, it turns out we know now what it was. We'd always play in the afternoon after uh, school. And early in the game, it was broad daylight. As it got later, you know, it started getting darker and dusk set and everything. And uh, I couldn't see the baseball. So uh, Mm -hmm. that was the end of my baseball career. And then I started playing football. And that was my sport. I, my ambition as a young man was nothing more or less than to be an All-American football player and then go into the NFL and make my living playing football on Sundays. And the scouts and coaches and people that monitor those sorts of things uh, assured me I had the size and speed to do that. So I thought it's just a matter of time till I'm in the NFL doing that. And then one year during a routine physical before going to play a season of football, they, they always make you get a very intense physical before you play. They want to make sure you're healthy before they take you out and try to kill you is what amounts to that. <laughs> and um, I, during this physical, I noticed it was taking a lot longer than it usually did. And then a doctor came and he shined his light in my eyes and another doctor shined his light in there. And a third doctor came and did several more tests. And eventually the three doctors took me down a long hall and sat me down at a table and they said, Jim, we're not sure why and we're not sure when, but we do know someday you're going to be totally blind and there's nothing we can do about it. And your whole world just stops right there. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I I knew I wasn't going to go into the NFL and make my living playing ball there because at that time and to this very day, there's never been a blind guy in the NFL. Those of us who are Dallas Cowboys fans and saw the Philadelphia Eagles game last year would really question whether they had blind people playing or not. But I was assured that they're all sighted. They just have some other challenges (laughs) during that particular game. So uh, I realized uh, I'm going to have to figure out a way to go do something else in my life. What went at that moment when when you get told that some, you know, someday you are going to be totally blind, what I mean, what, what, yeah, like you said, your world stops, and and I can't imagine all the the thoughts that go through your head at that time. But well, how long did it take from that moment till you were totally blind? Well, it was a slow progression mm-hmm. of eleven years, but I was functionally blind uh, 
within a few years of that time. I mm-hmm. had lost the vast majority of my sight, and then slowly you lost the light perception. But uh, pretty shortly after that, I, I was not able to read, I was not able to drive, I could barely get around on my own, and uh, mm-hmm. so I was functionally blind. In fact, uh, when I finally went totally blind, it, in some ways it was easier than that partially sighted period. Uh, the, the only thing worse than being totally blind is you think you see something and you don't, and that's uh, that's when you get yourself in trouble. Yeah. During those times where you, like I said, you, you kind of still had your, your sight and it was deteriorating, did you think, I've got to go out and do so many things and get, like— you know, was it like a rush to get stuff to experience things? Yeah, I, I, I thought a lot about that. I thought about um, doing other things. I, I got angry. I was mm-hmm. frustrated. I was. Uh, I remember one morning that fall, everybody was off. Everybody that I'd known and had been friends of mine, they were off playing football at various places, and uh, I was stuck back here. And so I got up one morning and I had a conversation with God. I wasn't sure if there was a God, but I said, God, if you're real and if you're out there, I need to know that there's something I can do and you got a plan for a blind guy and I need to know today. You know, not not only do I give God an ultimatum, I give him a timeline, right? Yeah. So, uh, well, that fall, as happens every fall, here in Tulsa, the state fair comes to town and I could still see enough to get around on my own. So I figure I'll just go to the fair and try to forget about all this. And I went to the big exhibition building, and they had a demonstration from the previous Olympic Games. And I frankly, I went over there to watch the girls, the gymnasts. And about the time I get over there, they bring out the weightlifters, and I watch those guys. And I thought, you know, that's something a guy could do even if he was going blind. And three years later, I was a national champion, and I got to finish my athletic career as an Olympic weightlifter. And I left that building, and I walked on down the midway to the pavilion, the big arena there, and they had a sign that said, free concert. I had no idea who was playing, but free totally fit my budget. Well, I went in, and there was nobody there yet. I had no idea who was playing or when it started. So I went down to the front row center, and I sat down. And I thought a little, and I was emotional, and I'm thinking I'm not going to play football, but I thought about those weightlifters, and I reminded God, uh, you got a deadline here at midnight, you got about five hours to convince me that a blind guy can do something, and you got a plan for me. And I was so intent on my thoughts that I really was unaware that the arena kind of filled up around me until I heard a voice I will never forget. said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Tulsa State Fair, the one, the only, the legend, Ray Charles. And they brought Ray out, and he was about eight feet away from me. And Ray was some kind of magic. And I said, okay, God, I get it. I, I, um, you know, some people get a burning bush. I get Ray Charles. (laughs) That'll work for me. And, uh, you know, and and that was the beginning of it. And, And it... You know, and it was uh, only a little over a decade later, I have a successful business, uh, life has changed for me, and I'm speaking at Madison Square Garden in New York to 18,000 business leaders from around the world. And the promoter met me backstage as I came off stage, and he said, wow, that's exactly what we needed. He said, I have another group in town next week, can you stay? I said, you want to pay me again? I'll do it again. And He said, do you want to go back to Oklahoma or stay in New York? I said, you know, I got some TV business to do for narrative television. I'll stay here. 
And he said, well, since you're going to be here, I got another act in town if you want to go. And I was trying to think of a polite way to tell this man who's paying me more money than anyone should get for doing something they absolutely love. I was trying to think, how do I tell this guy I'm not comfortable in public? I'm okay on stage, but don't put me out in the crowd with all those people. And I wasn't sure how to tell him. And just to be polite, I asked him, I said, well, who do you have in town? He said, tomorrow night, Carnegie Hall, Ray Charles. I said, yeah, I'll go to that. I said, you, you got anything on the front row? He said, for you, you're on the front row. And afterwards, they took me backstage, and uh, they said, you know, Ray's got a couple more autographs to sign, then you guys can hang out. And, you know, I didn't know blind people could write. I'd been blind a, a number of years then, and I didn't know blind people could write. So I said, how does he write? And the, he heard me, and he said, who said that? And I said, my name's Jim Stovall. I'm blind, too. I didn't know blind people could write. And he said, son, if anybody in your life ever thinks enough of you to want your autograph, the least you can do is learn how to write your name. And he kind of ticked me off. I said, well, old man, you're going to have to show me. He said, sit yourself down here. And he showed me how he traced out Ray Charles and showed me how to write Jim Stovall. And, and we became friends. And it was another 10 years before I learned how to write anything else. I could write Jim Stovall or Ray Charles. That's all I knew how to write. But uh, the people in my office tell me at this point in my life, I probably... Uh, autographed well over a quarter of a million books and they they owe it all to Ray Charles and that uh, that one day here in Oklahoma at the State Fair. Yeah. That's oh, that's awesome. I love it. And what a great sound to listen to as well. I mean he's absolutely he's got some uh, he's got some great talent for sure. Uh, so when you know when you get that, you know, when you ask God and you give him the ultimatum and he does gift you Ray Charles you are you in university at that time? You go you go to university. I, right? I started the university that fall and quit. I couldn't make it. Then I went back to the only thing I knew how to do at that time, which was um, construction work. I shoveled concrete. That was the extent of my skill level. But I was bigger and stronger, so they kept me around and mm -hmm. uh, actually paid me a little extra. And but I was going blind so fast. I was I was going to hurt myself or somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that next fall, I went back to back to college to try one last time, and then something amazing happened there. They they got all these various students from my classes to read my textbooks to them uh, to me, and one of them was a young lady named Crystal. And as soon as I met her, I told the uh, uh, the dean, uh, "We're not going to need any of these other people. Uh, Crystal and I will make it through here." or I won't make it at all, and we made it through school, and we made it through life, and, uh, and the best thing that ever happened to me, you know, and I, I've often thought about that. If I had to go blind to meet Crystal, that was a great trade for me. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, and I always have to tell people at this point in the story, because the boss likes it, um, when we finally graduated, she graduated first in our class, and I graduated second. You know, and if you graduate second in your class, it's not a bad thing unless you live with number one. Then it's kind of a brutal thing. But recently I've developed that theory I hang on to, which is uh, maybe she didn't read me the whole book. She left just enough out. I have no evidence to support that, but it always makes me feel better. Yeah, you, it, when when you were inducted last year, you told that story at the induction, and I I did crack up laughing because I thought that was great. And um, Crystal walked you out, and 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 it's obviously you know you guys have been a team since that day. Yeah, and it's great to see you guys on stage, and and both you know 
she's as much part of obviously your life as you know and and, and the accomplishments and um yeah it's great to meet her as well and all the people on my team i mean uh, you know it's things like the hall of fame and so many other things that have happened to me i always remind all the team and of course miss crystal it's a we thing it's not a me thing i uh, you know, I can't get to work in the morning. I can't get to my office. I can't get on stage. I, there's nothing I do without somebody else that dedicates their lives, or in my case, they dedicate their eyes, uh, uh, for me to be able to do what I do. So mm-hmm. you take every opportunity, including ones like this, to simply say thank you. Yeah, no doubt. With with the narrative television, where where did the idea come to you and and I, I know you, you told this story as well when you were inducted, but I wonder if you could tell it again for our listeners. It's just where you were at that moment. And- sure. I lost the remainder of my sight at age 29. I woke up one morning, and the little vision I had had left was gone. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I had really had no plans. It was a frustrating thing. I moved into this little 9-by-12-foot room in the back of my house, and I had my radio, my telephone, my tape recorder. That was my whole world. I thought I'd never leave there again. And the thought of, wow, traveling millions of miles or uh, writing 50 books and having eight of them turned into movies or speaking to millions of people in arena events or or talking to you and your audience here today, that would have seemed as foreign to me as going to the moon. So I sat month after month in my little self-imposed prison there, and I got really kind of depressed. And the one real fortunate thing that happened that little room in the back of our house before I'd lost my sight, that had been our TV room. And so I knew across the room there from me is a television and our video player with a bunch of my favorite classic movies. And one day out of sheer boredom, I put one of those movies on an old Humphrey Bogart film called The Big Sleep uh, about Philip Marlowe, the detective. And, you know, I, I thought I've seen it so many times. I'll just be able to follow along and remember And it worked for a while, but then somebody shot somebody and somebody screamed and I heard the car speed away and I got really frustrated. And I said the magic words. I said, somebody ought to do something about that. And that was the beginning of narrative television. You know, the whole world's praying for a great idea and they trip over one about three times a week. Mm -hmm. The only thing you got to do to have a great idea is go through your daily routine, wait for something bad to happen and ask yourself, how could I have avoided that? And the answer to that question is a great idea. And the only thing you got to do to turn your great idea into a great business is ask one more question. How can I help other people avoid that? Because the world will give you fame and fortune and everything you ever wanted if you'll just worry about them and solve their problems. Because uh, life and success and money and fortune and legacy is not about me. It's about them. And... uh, you know, we succeed by creating value in the lives of others. So somehow in the process of solving my problem of not being able to access television, I created a system so I could enjoy television and movies. And well, now we help the 13 million blind and visually impaired Americans and many millions more around the world access television and movies. Because uh, for a lot of your audience, if you unless you're blind or visually impaired, you don't realize that television, movies, educational videos are among the 
top entertainment, educational, informational sources mm -hmm. in our society. And if you're not able to access that, wow, it's just one more thing that separates you from the rest of the world. Yeah, I, it's and, – and so much – like you said, so much of our lives revolves around television. I mean it's on our iPhones now or YouTube TV or Netflix, whatever it is. Like it's all it's all there. But you're right. You take that away and – and you know you have a book, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's about it. But and book and, and and radio. Who who was the first person you went to, and how did you get that idea off the ground? Well, that's a great question. It was about that time I finally got out of my little room, and you know I didn't I didn't write a best-selling book or start a company or become a millionaire. I I walked fifty feet to my mailbox, and that was one of the hardest things I ever did as a blind person. And that kind of changed my world. I thought, okay, if I can make it this far, what can I do next and next? And um, about that time, I went to my first, last, and only meeting of blind people. And because uh, they, they told me it was a support group. So I go to this. I thought I could learn more about it, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I'm now that I'm getting out of my room, maybe I can learn how to deal with this. And I went there, and all they did was sat around and talked about how bad it was to be blind. I already figured that part out. Yeah. But while I was there, I met a young lady, and she was at her first, last, and only meeting of blind people. And I told her about my idea. And she was legally blind. I'm totally blind. And, you know, she was a single mom working for a law firm uh, in, in downtown Tulsa. And I shared my idea of how I thought creating these soundtracks could help millions of people. And she said, when are we going to do this? Mm -hmm. And I said, do what? And I said, by the way, who, who's we? What are you talking about? I barely got here. And she tapped into the last vestige of my Olympic weightlifter competitiveness. She said, oh, I didn't realize you were just talking about it. I thought you were serious. Okay, that was the beginning of narrative television. And uh, she and I started it together. Uh, we were the blind leading the blind. Neither one of us had a clue what we were doing. We didn't know enough to know you couldn't do this. Mm -hmm. And it was a series of absolute unpredictable miracles that got us through the technology to learn how to do it and got us on the programming and then on air and then all the success we had. And that was an amazing journey. Who, uh, what was that first, I guess, was it a TV show or was it a movie that you first The very narrated? first thing we did was a a um, TV show then at the time, but we only worked on home video, mm -hmm. and, but we got the rights to several TV shows like Matlock, Dick Van Dyke, Andy Griffith, and we got a lot of classic films. And that was kind of the beginning. And we released them on home video and we just got buried. Uh, imagine 13 million people all in the same place. It'd be the largest city in America. Yeah. And, they had never had access to movies and television. All of a sudden, all of them want all of our videos all the time. Yeah. And we had a serious problem. So I said, we need to go on television. And that was the beginning of, uh, of everything that happened. Uh, we found uh, several outlets that would take our programming and wanted our audience. And then Ted Turner came on board and brought us a lot of programming on, and has been on our advisory board, uh, well, to this day, actually. And... Uh, and um, and then the digital world came in in the early to mid 90s and uh, that opened up everything. Today, as we speak, um, 
you know, all the major networks, all all primetime programming, all first-run movies, all educational television is narrated or described for blind and visually impaired people. So it's it's become, you know, it's amazing. When Kathy and I started, we flew out to California several times. I couldn't get anybody to listen to me. Nobody would pay attention to me. And, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people watching or listening to us think, of, you know, they sell things or market things, and it's tough. It's tough to get people to buy into your concept. But when you do TV for blind people and nobody's ever heard of it, they think it's a bad joke or something, you know. And uh, But uh, I remember one of our last trips out there, we were finally starting to break through. And we get on the plane to fly home, and I was getting my audio book out and uh, getting ready to listen to the my audio book on my headset all the way back. And she said, before you do that, there's something you ought to know. I said, what's that? She said, right here on the in-flight movies, there's over three dozen of our narrated titles right here for blind people on this airplane. Yeah. And they had no idea. I mean, it's just, that was one of those mini surreal moments we've had. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. And, and I, you know, it, it's tapping into your competitive nature. She knew exactly what she was doing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, she oh, kind of yeah. just baited you a little bit into that. But, yeah. you know, as with all businesses getting off the ground, you know, it's not easy. It takes a lot of hard work. You've got to knock on a lot of doors and mm-hmm. keep, keep, you know, keep knocking on that door until, like you said, finally, you know, you get people on board, the ball starts rolling. Right. And it's snowball effect, right? And once oh. you get one or two big fish in, everyone else sees that it's, you know, they're, they're betting on, you know, they're... they're they're in with you, so everyone else needs to jump on board as well. Right, and you get, you know, in a lot of hard work, and then you get a few breaks, and then a lot of hard, you know, it's like, um, you know, three steps forward and two back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just before we went on national television, I thought we had the whole world by the tail. We were going to go up via satellite to over a thousand stations. And then uh, a guy that used to work for me, one of these guys that loves to find problems. He just runs around and throws up on everybody. And uh, and um, he came into my office. He said, Jim, our company's not going to make it. We're going to go broke and go out of business. I said, what are you talking about? We're getting ready to launch on national television. We just won an Emmy Award. We've got all this stuff going on. He said, Jim, you've committed to over a 1,000 TV stations that you're going to deliver two-hour blocks of programming at various times of the day and night via satellite. And our movies that you got are too short. And I said, what do you mean they're too short? We own some great movies. And he said, well, they average right at an hour and a half, and you were going to have a half hour of dead air on national television. He said, what are you going to do about it? And I, well, I wasn't going to tell him. I said, well, I'm going to host a talk show, and I'm going to interview these movie stars that are in these movies. Mm-hmm. And I had to release him shortly after that to go find an opportunity somewhere else. I told him I have enough problems with my comp- my competition. <laughs> I don't need to pay people to bring me problems. I, I get enough of them anyway. And Kathy and I, uh, I, we were about eight weeks from going on national TV, and we had a lot of classic movies. That was our audience. And so she and I head off blind leading the blind with her giant magnifying glass she could read with, and we found a book in the Tulsa Public Library called Addresses of the Stars. And she read me some of these names like, Catherine Hepburn, Jimmy Stewart, Frank Sinatra, Michael Douglas. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll let them be on my show. And I wrote these people, the biggest names in the golden age of Hollywood, a one-page letter. And I told them what a great career opportunity I was going to give them mm-hmm. for no money to come on my non-existent talk show on my mythical network. And could you please hurry up and let me know? Because we're now about seven weeks from air. 
and we had a moment of silence and we sent out this giant pile of letters. And, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, I always tell people when your ship's sinking, I'll take a leaky lifeboat. I mean, it's, it's better than nothing. Let's try it. Well, it was about 10 days later, the first response came back in the mail. And Kathy was excited. She had the giant magnifying glass she was reading, and she said, it says Catherine Hepburn, New York City. Well, wow. I mean, she had just had her on Golden Pond, won an Academy Award. She turned down Letterman and Leno at the time. And I thought, wow, what is this? And it, Kathy opened it, and it said, please call this number. We can explore possibly doing your interview. So I called the number. I'm ready to talk to her agent or her secretary or her manager or whoever answers the phone. And she answers the phone herself with that Catherine Hepburn voice she had. And I, man, I'm trying not to pass out on the floor. I'm this guy from Tulsa and doesn't know what he's doing. And I said, Miss Hepburn, I'm, I'm really surprised you answer your phone. And she said, Jim, don't you answer your phone? She said, I've always felt when one's phone rings, one should answer it. And I said, of course they should. And I wish I hadn't brought that up, but she was my first big interview. I'd never done local or regional TV. I mean, I, you know, a couple of weeks later, I'm sitting there next to Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. And that opened up so many doors because, you know, we could tell people, uh, we'd like you to be on our show. Uh, Catherine Hepburn was last week. You'll be next week. So after that, I got Jimmy Stewart and then Frank Sinatra did a thing for me. And that, wow, that was uh, monumental. And, uh, but it was all due to Catherine Hepburn and late in her life, we talked several more times and I said, Miss Hepburn, you know, you have no idea how I used you to build my television network. And she said, Jim, men have used me all my life. At least you're honest about it. And I said, well, I, I certainly did. And, uh, and it was an amazing time. And you just, you know, when the dream's big enough, the facts don't count. And I just figured there's some way we're going to get there. Where where did you have that idea to have the talk show in between that dead air? Where did that come from? And had you ever had you ever done any interview experience before then? No, I had no experience doing a talk show. I had no experience doing anything. I mean, I, I had shoveled concrete. I yeah. didn't know what I was doing. And the next thing I know, I'm building a television network. And um, I mean, what I didn't know about television would amaze you. I, we had, we'd won an Emmy Award for our first season on national television. Kathy and I fly blind leading the blind to New York City, and I did a thing with Larry King. He had recorded a thing with all the people getting Emmy Awards, and he thought it was kind of cool. A blind guy's getting an Emmy Award for TV, and he was going to air it that night just before the awards. Well, I'm upstairs in my hotel room trying to get my tuxedo on and trying to get the TV on CNN, and I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I called down to the front desk, and I, I said... Um, I'm up here and I'm going to be on Larry King in about three minutes and I don't know how to get your TV to work. Well, the guy was quick. I'll give him that. The bellman rushes in and runs over to the TV and pushes the power button and the TV comes on. And he says in that uh, New York bellman tone that they can get, he said, sir, if you want to watch the TV, you kind of need to push the power button on. But he was a good New York bellman going for the big tip. So he didn't want to embarrass me too bad. He said, so what are you doing here in New York this week? I said, well, I'm here to get an Emmy Award for engineering expertise that's expanded the scope of television, which he thought was kind of amazing for a guy that didn't know how to turn one on. And that was kind of, it's been that way. And it just continued to be that way. And, uh, you know, and uh, just the movie stars came out and the Emmy Awards and everything opened up and then digital stuff happened and uh, the world changed for us. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I mean, like you said, once you get Captain Hepburn and you use, you know, that, hey, I, I, she was on last week and you keep going and snowballing, you know, and, and Larry King, for people who don't know, Larry King was the best interviewer in the world, in my opinion. No question. Um, you know, did it for for as long as he did it until he died. I mean, he did it for yeah. a very extremely long time and, and yeah. I still pull his questions. I watch him, you know, on, on YouTube and I pull it some of the questions that he asked his guests and I use them on my guests because they're, they're timeless and he's just the, one of the greatest, you know, great story. But, um, you know, you know, you mentioned Frank Sinatra, like having sitting across the table from, from Frank Sinatra and, and movie stars and people like that, what was the stuff that they would, they must've been in awe of you and what you were doing. Well, I did. <laughs> I don't know if Mr. Sinatra was in awe of me. I was certainly in awe of him. I, I, I went down to Dallas, and he was doing a, th- a concert with the symphony, and he had, uh, they had reserved the top two floors of the higher regency. And, I mean, they'd cordoned off the street, and there's helicopters flying around and everything, and, you know, my crew's all ready, and here comes Frank Sinatra with about five or six guys that were always around him. And, uh, you know, I said, Mr. Sinatra, you've created quite a commotion here in Dallas. And he said, what are you talking about? And he turns to one of his guys and says, uh, What's he talking about? And then he says, well, I know what he's talking about, but boss, you don't get it. And and then I realize he's never been anywhere where Frank Sinatra isn't there. He thinks this is normal, you know, and uh, but he was great. And, you know, you know, from doing interviews like we're doing now, mm-hmm. if you can ever get past people's pad answers, the canned answers they have, you know, they're, they're, you know, Frank Sinatra was asked every question under the book. And most of them, he just started the tape and would play his normal answer to that question. But some of them, you know, you, you realize you get a little past that. And, uh, you know, I said, Mr. Sinatra, 50 years from now, what, what do you want people back in Hoboken, New Jersey, to say about Frank Sinatra? And he said, you know, I, they know me, and they know all the bad and ugly things about me. And, and he said, you know, Jim, I'd like them to say, you know, that Sinatra kid was a decent saloon singer that put on a, a good show. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's enough. But I'll never forget my last minute with Sinatra. You know, I shook his hand and he walked with us about halfway down the corridor to the elevator. And there's nobody on the floor but him. And we're about halfway to the elevator. And he said, "Take care." And I get all the way to the elevator and he says, "Hey, kid." And I turned around and I'm a kid. I was 35 years old then. He said, "Hey, kid." And I said, "Yes, sir." He said, "I hope you live to be a hundred years old. And the last thing you ever hear is me singing you a song." And I said, may it be so. Oh, that's awesome. What a voice to listen to as well. So yeah. good. So good. Um, I mean, was it, I mean, it's an icon like Frank Sinatra. Is there any others that kind of, that you grew up? I mean, obviously you mentioned meeting Mickey Mantle and the experience with your dad and that, but is there anyone else that stood out to you that you were just like, I can't believe I'm, I mean, sitting with movie stars every week was, I mean, everyone was probably, you know, standing out to you, but was there one that really was like, wow. I went to Jimmy Stewart's house in Bel Air and I'll never forget because we were going over there and they told me, they said, one of the crew guys said, He's on the front page of the paper today. He bought the house next door to him, and he's tearing it down. Well, he had bought Lucy, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz's house for $4 million. Today it'd be 30 or $40 million. Mm-hmm. But he bought it for $4 bucks, and he was tearing it down. So we're sitting there doing the interview, and I said, 
Well, I said, Mr. Stewart, you made the, the press today, and they said you bought the house next door, and you're, you're tearing it down. Do you mind telling us why? And he said, Jim, do you like homegrown tomatoes? And I thought, the, the, the guy's losing it here. I said, <laughs> yeah, I enjoy homegrown tomatoes. He said, well, so do I. And he said, the afternoon sun is critical, Jim, if you're going to have decent tomatoes. And he said, that house has been blocking the sun on my tomatoes for years. And it came up for sale, and I bought it, and I'm getting it out of the way. And I said, Mr. Stewart, you spent $4 million for tomatoes? And he said, he said, son, at this point in my life, $4 million I got. It's tomatoes I want. <laughs> and I said, man, I hope... I said, I hope they're great, and I hope you have some good ones, and I will never forget the crew. We finished the interview, and we're getting everything on the van and everything, and I said, guys, let's get out of here, and they said, no, he's coming out, and Mr. Stewart's coming out of the house, and he had this little brown bag, and he said, something for you and your gentleman, and it was tomatoes, <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is really cool. I said, you guys better enjoy these. That's probably $2 million worth of tomatoes right there. <laughs> Oh, that's great. It's the, yeah, you're right. Like, it's just stories like that. I'm sure you've got hundreds, oh, you know, they're all so great. many. They're all great. They're all amazing. Uh, I could bore you far longer than you and your audience would put up. But, you know, and most of the people were better than I thought they would ever be. And there's a few of them, as I'm sure has happened in your work, mm -hmm. I wish I'd never met because I'd always admired their work and enjoyed them from afar. But, uh, you know, in person, they just weren't you know, who I thought they would be. And it's weird to find out the difference uh, of them that, uh, uh, you know, how they are friends with other people you wouldn't think. Mm -hmm. I was over to Eddie Albert's house from Green Acres and all the Longest Yard and all the shows he'd done, and we were doing it in his backyard. And next door, th they have this really loud music playing outside by the pool. And, I, and, the, and the sound guy said, Jim, that's messing with us. I'm not sure I can get around that. And I said, Mr. Albert, I'm sorry we're having trouble with the, the sound from one of your neighbors. And he turned to his girl said, get me the phone. And, and he, you know, he dials and said, Rod, shut off your stupid music. And uh, he said, I love to hear his music. And, he, and then I realized, you live next door to Rod Stewart. He said, yeah, I, I, I do. And everything. And it's so weird. And then the day I went to interview Pat Boone, and you think of Pat as this straight-laced guy and everything. And, and he had just done some album tribute to Alice Cooper. And, you know, I did my interview with him. We're getting ready to leave. And, uh, and you know, as we go through the lobby, there's some guy that says, good afternoon, how are you guys? I said, very good, sir, how are you? And we leave. And, and um, you know, we're going downstairs. And I said, can you believe he did a deal with, with Alice Cooper? And well, the guy in the building taking us downstairs, he said, you just said, hello, that guy in the suit with the clean cut hair. He said, that's Alice Cooper. He's not on stage right now, and you, nobody knows who he is. So he just said, looks like a normal guy. So it's interesting to think of, you know, Eddie Albert and Rod Stewart hanging out or Pat Boone and Alice Cooper. It's just strange things. Yeah, the, you're right. The crowds that mix and, and the people that mix together, you're right. You'd never put them together, even if you had them next to each other on, you know, you wrote their names down on, on a piece of paper. You'd never put them together right. in a group for exactly. sure. But, so at this point, then narrative television is, you know, it's kicking. You're in the full flow of things. Um, when do you write your first book? Great question. Uh, I never intended to be an author. I, before I lost my sight, uh, I'd never thought of writing a book. I'd, I don't think I'd ever read a book cover to cover. 
I did whatever you had to do to get through school, and I was an athlete, so it didn't take much. So I'd never read any more than you just absolutely had to. After losing my sight, I discovered the National Library for the Blind, and I was part of an experiment they did to see how fast people could listen to audio on compressed digital audio. And I was part of that experiment, and I can listen very, very fast and retain it. And so for the last 30 plus years, I read a book every day. There hasn't been a day in over 30 years, I haven't read a whole book cover to cover, and that changed my life. But I never thought about being a writer. We won the Emmy Award for our first season, and because of that, I was asked to be the keynote speaker at the National Association of Broadcasters. And I'd never done a speech or anything like that, but I just figured, here's all the cable networks and all of the broadcaster stations and everybody in the industry that I'm trying to sell narrative television to, and they're going to be in one big arena at the same time. I'm going to go talk to them. Well, at the end of the speech, um, three different people came over to my the people that were with me and said, we'd like him to come speak at our convention, or can he come talk at our meeting or whatever? And the next thing I know, I'm doing these motivational, inspirational speeches or something. And I found myself on the West Coast doing an arena tour with Dr. Robert Schuler and Dr. Dennis Whaley. And one day we were sitting backstage and Dr. Robert Schuler of the Crystal Cathedral fame came up to me in that Robert Schuler voice that sounds something like I think God does. And he said, my friend, Jim, I believe you should write a book. And I said, I can't read a book. Why should I write a book? I have no interest in this. He said, I feel very strongly about this. Well, about that time, the MC said, Jim, you're up. And I went out in the arena. I did my hour. And I, as I was coming off stage, I, um, Dr. Waitley was there, great author, great speaker, wrote Psychology of Winning, former Blue Angel pilot and psychologist to the Olympic team, amazing guy. And he said, hey, Jim, great job. And while you were out there, Dr. Schuler and I got it all worked out. I thought he meant the ground transportation to the plane. <laughs> I didn't know what he was. I said, what'd you guys work out? And he said, well, while you were out there, Schuler called his publisher, Thomas Nelson, and I agreed to write the forward to your book, and we need your manuscript in about 90 days. And that's how I became an author. I came back to Oklahoma, and I thought, okay, I can't let these guys down. So I wrote my story of losing my sight and becoming a weightlifter and starting narrative television, all the stuff you and I have been talking about. Mm -hmm. And I put it in a book called You Don't Have to Be Blind to See. And they put it out, and that was my first book. And about a year later, um, they called and they said, Jim, this book's really selling well. We're almost ready for your follow-up book. And I said, well, that's great. What is a follow-up book? And they said, well, that's the book you come out with next to, to cap capitalize on the success of this first title. I said, you should have told me about that before I wrote the first book, or I wouldn't have written everything I knew in the first book. Well, I wrote a book called Success Secrets of Super Achievers, and I went back to a lot of the people I had interviewed on television, you know, Miss Hepburn and Jimmy Stewart and Frank Sinatra, and I got their ideas on success and happiness, and they loved that book, and they wanted another one, so I wrote an autobiographical thing, The Way I See the World, and then I did a book with Steve Forbes, uh, Great American Success Stories, and... Man, I was scraping the bottom of the barrel. I'd written everything I knew and a few things I only suspected. And when they said, uh, Jim, we want another book, I, I said, wow, I'm going to have to make up a story. Mm -hmm. So I decided one day I'm going to write a novel. 
And I had a lady in my office, then I wrote my first 40 books with her, and I dictated. I, I don't know how to type. I can't read. I don't know how to type. I, you know, people tell me they can't pursue their dreams. I, I write books I can't read that are turned into movies I can't watch. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, it's, it's so absurd. And I told Dorothy, I came in one day, I said, I'm going to write a, a, a novel. And she said, what's it about? And then I said, I have no idea. I said, I, I got the, I got the first line of it riding over here in the back of the limo. And, you know, I said, Michael, I'm going to, I'm going to write a story. And he said, what's it about? I said, well, the first line said, it was my 80th year of life on earth and my 53rd year in the practice of the law that I was to undertake an odyssey that would change my existence forever. Mm -hmm. And I said, Michael said, okay, I like that. I would read on. I said, now, if I can just figure out who said that and what is he talking about, we're going to have a book. And over the next five days at Narrative TV, between my meetings and phone calls, uh, I dictated The Ultimate Gift. Mm -hmm. There was never an edit, never a rewrite. The way I dictated it in those five days is the way that uh, uh, eight to 10 million people now around the world have read it. And that opened the world of movies to me. That was my first movie. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Wow, the whole world changed. Yeah. What led you to kind of becoming an, uh, a, a motivational speaker? Well, I, I, after I spoke at the National Association of Broadcasters, these people just came up and said, um, would he come speak at our deal? Right. And I had no idea you could get paid for this. And I certainly had no idea how much. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, the first guy said, will you come speak at our deal? And I said, okay. And... He said, we'll pay you five. And I said, $5, 500, 5,000. And, you know, now it's many, many times that. And, yeah. and I, so I never intended to, it just, it kind of, uh, grows out of it, you know? And, uh, you know, people always ask me, how do you become a motivational speaker and how do you market it? Well, I just be phenomenal on stage and people will call you, I guess. I, yeah. I never really thought about it. And then that's how I became a writer from the that and then the movie thing we just kind of backed into mm -hmm. it's something that like, like you just said it comes naturally and and you know you i mean there are some people who want to go into motivational speaking but you know you're genuinely telling your story right. and, and the hardships that you've gone through so it comes across more naturally on stage you know and you're not trying to pedal or push or lead people in a certain direction that you have no idea whether you're taking them but you're trying to lift them up you're generally just saying look i've overcome this you know i've overcome something that's, that's you know very very hard to overcome and a lot of people don't overcome this you know and they like you mentioned when you first found out you know you you get depressed and and some people just they, they dive into that cycle and then sadly that's where they stay. But the story of yours is, is you know, you just continue to share your story and, and that's motivation enough. So exactly. it's, it's really and neat to hear that. Exactly. And, and my blindness is no worse than someone else's divorce or bankruptcy or uh, lost their job or whatever it is. You know, we're all only as big as the smallest thing it takes to divert us from where we ought to be. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it, you know, I, I've i never seen an example of a dream being put inside somebody that didn't have the capacity to achieve it. Mm -hmm. So the question is never can we, the question is always will we. And uh, and the game's not over until we give up. I'm a huge baseball fan. I hope they fix this strike. But uh, during spring, summer, and fall, you'll find me listening to satellite radio most nights, and I can get broadcasts from all across the country. And, and I am still convinced, even though I couldn't make it in Little League, 
you know, I could I could be a major league hitter right now mm-hmm. if I could change one rule of baseball. I only got to change one rule. If you'll let me stand up there and give me as many strikes as I want, sooner or later I'm going to hit it because the game's not over till I quit. Yeah. Well, that's the way life is. It's not three strikes and you're out. It's you get to keep swinging until you decide um, you don't want to go anymore. Yeah. That's, I'm going to clip that and put that out because that's a great quote and it's it's one that many people can learn from. Um, fast forwarding, you know, you've you've written 50, I believe up to date, over 50 books, eight of them into movies, Entrepreneur of the Year, International Humanitarian of the Year. What was it like when you had that phone call last year saying you're going to be inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame? Well, you know, I, wow, I... Um it was hard to imagine, uh, you know, when people start calling you and saying you're going to, you know, we have this thing with, you know, Will Rogers and Mickey Mantle and Paul Harvey and all these people, you know, I, you know, when you get a call like that, you think they want you to buy a table for something or something, you know, <laughs> and, you know, you know, they're going to honor me. And once you get over the shock, you have a lot of gratitude. But as I said that night and continue to say, I, I continue to always look at things like this more as a challenge to live up to in the future than anything I may or may not have done in the past. I I, I, I just believe uh, it's a call to greatness. It's not a uh, the finish line. It's the starting gate. Mm-hmm. What uh, moving I guess into present day? What what are your plans this year? What what is kind of you know, the state of of the business and kind of where, you know, obviously, like you just mentioned, you know, you're not done until you decide you're done. Um, I mean, what's in the future for you? Well, when COVID hit, um, I realized we're not going to make any movies and we're not going to have any arena events for a while. So I became a writer. And in addition to narrative TV, and I write a weekly syndicated column, I do a couple of radio shows, but I became basically a full-time writer. I've written seven books in the last 18 months, by far the most prolific time of my life. Mm -hmm. So that was exciting. So over the next three years or so, those books will be coming out. And now we have three separate movies that are under contract. And uh, uh, I I think at least one or two of them are probably going to get made maybe as soon as this summer or fall. So uh, I'm excited about those. And uh, at least one of them will shoot here in Oklahoma. It's a, uh, I've written a series of, uh, I call them homecoming historicals. They all take place at modern day high schools, but the namesake of the school gets involved. Mm -hmm. The first one dealt with Harry Truman, then then the next one, Napoleon Hill, and then the third one is about Will Rogers. So uh, we'll shoot it uh, over at Will Rogers High School and the Rogers family's involved and uh, Jennifer Rogers, it's the only only project they've endorsed since uh, Will Rogers Follies went on Broadway all those years ago. it's just I'm excited to bring Will Rogers, you know, to the whole world. So working on that, and then uh, Crystal and I started the Stovall Center for Entrepreneurship at Oral Roberts University. So we have kids from around the world that are getting degrees in entrepreneurship and starting businesses. Mm-hmm. And I have an office there, and I work on that, and uh, still enjoy narrative television. It matters a lot to me. And now we're just getting out and. Uh, starting to do some live events again. And uh, wow, it is uh, it is so cool after a two-year kind of hiatus to get in front of real live people again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that thrill of being in front of a crowd, you know, and sensing the, the energy of the room 
and and kind of commanding the room as well as a speaker. That's something that it's addicting, right? Oh, absolutely. So finishing up, and I'm going to ask you the question that you asked Frank Sinatra because I, I love it. What I mean, what do you hope your legacy looks like? I'm in the message business, and when I remember that, things go well for me. Whether I'm writing a book or making it into a movie or doing a TV show or a speech or a column or talking to you, I'm in the message business. And my message to people is you change your life when you change your mind and you're one quality decision away from anything you want. And the biggest dream you ever had is alive and well. And the only thing you got to do is go into that little voting booth in the middle of your soul that only you and God know about and reach up and vote for yourself. And once you vote for yourself, you'll figure out he voted for you a long time ago. And, you know, my message or my legacy is, uh, you know, if people can look back and say he made me believe that I could be as good as I am, uh, that would matter to me. Yeah, that's uh, that's special. You're right. I mean, there's, you know, the, our biggest our biggest uh, hurdle to overjump is ourselves, right? It's Trying, you know, saying I can do this, and and getting over our self doubt, and you know, like you said earlier, you know, we trip over three ideas, life changing ideas every day. It's it's taking any one of those and and running with it, and and go giving it everything you have until you know until you 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 say you're done, not till you know someone else says you're done, because it depends on the time of day you catch somebody. But I want to thank you. For, for having us in your house for an hour. I really appreciate your time. Um, we could sit here and talk for hours. I could ask you questions about who you've interviewed because I'm utterly fascinated with, you know, all the guests that you've had and and just, you know, the 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 motivation, you know, side of yourself, the eternal optimism you have, the slight humor, which I've been catching on to and everything we've been speaking about. Um, and I'm sure people listening have caught on to those little humor, little cues that are in there as well. But thank you so much for having us. For people listening, I'm going to put a link to your bio and um, all the other businesses that you have with the website to, you know, the link to your books and the movies in, in the description for this podcast. And they can dive into your history. And no doubt they've probably watched something that you've produced or listened to it. Um, and hopefully uh, people listening will get to see you on stage one day. Well, I love that, and I appreciate you. It's a, it's wonderful to have you here in our home. And because of the books and movies, I do hundreds and hundreds of interviews on TV and radio every year. And rarely do I run across somebody as well-prepared and as fun to talk to as you. So I want to thank you and your audience, and I look forward to next time. Thank you, Mr. Stowell. I really appreciate that. That means a lot. Uh, for people listening, I'll, like I said, I'll post the links in the description, and we will catch you next episode. Cheers. This podcast was presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, who've been telling Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. Follow them online at OklahomaHOF.com and definitely on Instagram at OklahomaHOF. Catch you next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.